I'm on the bus from Managua to Granada, and you can't hear it, but in front of me, two men are having a conversation. They're conversing in what I can only imagine to be Nicaraguan Sign Language. Welcome to Language Stories, a podcast to discovering languages around the world and meeting the people who speak them. I'm Lindsay Williams from Lindsay Does Languages, a language-obsessed chica on the constant exploration of language, no matter where I am in the world. And this episode, welcome to Nicaragua. When Nicaraguan sign, sign language emerged, there was a war going on. A language emerging during wartime, well, it definitely has to be some old-time war that's buried in the history books because there's no way and it's a war in modern history. Languages don't emerge nowadays. The war James Shepard Kegel is actually referring to is the Contra War, part of the Nicaraguan Revolution that took place between 1962 and 1990. Yes, we're talking a war that recent and a language emerging that recently too. A sign language, in fact. Nicaragua has an indigenous sign language that initially emerged in the capital city, which is Managua, uh, and over the years is spreading uh, throughout the country. One of the most common misconceptions about sign language is that there's one. One sign language for all the deaf, hard of hearing people and people who want or need to communicate with them in the world. A sort of one-size-fits-all sign Esperanto, if you will. But this couldn't be further from the truth. There are at least 137 sign languages in the world, according to Ethnologue, with some estimates claiming around 300. And, just like oral languages, some of them have common origins, regional variations, and they've evolved out of a necessity for communication with accessibility and stimulation. If there's so many, why devote an entire episode of language stories to one singled out sign language? Well, firstly, why the heck not? So far in this series, we've explored multiple languages that we've devoted a single episode to. But secondly, Nicaraguan sign language has quite a remarkable story. That last point, evolving out of a necessity for communication with accessibility and stimulation, that's the very essence of Nicaraguan Sign Language. So, how did this happen? I spoke with James Shepard Kegel of Nicaraguan Sign Language Projects to find out more. After the revolution, um, and I would guess that the program itself was actually suspended during the height of, of the revolution, which was 1979. Okay. But... After that, the uh, the new government embarked on what, is, what we would say in English would be a literacy crusade. The entire population literate. Right. So we're talking on a wider scale here, not just with the community and sign languages. We're, yeah. No, primarily yeah. Spanish. Yeah. We're primarily, we're not talking special education or people mm. with disabilities. We're just talking a high rate of illiteracy in the country. Mm. It was quite an impressive project mm. that involved taking young people out of colleges and high schools in the cities and sending them to live in homes in wow. the rural areas and teach people to read and write. Okay? Of course, we're talking people who are, are natively fluent in Spanish. Was this in any way influenced by, because they did something similar in Cuba, I think, in the Yes, it's very influenced by yeah, Cuba. Yeah. This is during the, uh, the counter-revolution, the Contra War, so it was actually rather dangerous. Okay, a quick history lesson interruption required here. 
the program in Cuba I'm referring to, the Campaña Nacional de Alfabetización in Cuba, or Cuban Literacy Campaign. This was a huge national effort in Cuba to increase reading abilities across the country after the Cuban Revolution. Say what you like about Castro and Shea, but literacy rates in Cuba still today stand at 99.7%, one of the highest in the world. For reference, Nicaragua's literacy rate at the time of recording is 82.8. And the Contra War? The Nicaraguan Revolution is a big thing, and we haven't really got time to go into the whole thing. So, in brief... The Sandinistas, or the FSLN, opposed the Somoza-led dictatorship, which led to them overthrowing the regime in the late 70s. Many countries, including the US, supported the Somoza government, while the Soviet Union, East Germany and Cuba, among others, were backing the FSLN. This divide led to the Contra War in the 80s, the same time as Nicaraguan Sign Language began to emerge. So they expanded it with bilingual programs. They also said, well, let's bring in deaf people. So they took that very small program that was um, set up right before the revolution mm. and they expanded it. But they expanded it dramatically. So that instead of just a very few, I can count them on one hand, deaf children, mm. there were scores possibly well over 100. Also, instead of focusing in general on disabled children, you have now classes where that class is geared for deaf kids. That said, it was still an oral methodology. Oral methodology, or oralism, means teaching through listening and speaking. In a deaf education context, this means teaching through lip reading and mimicking mouth patterns of speech. This may have you scratching your head when we're talking about schools designed solely for deaf children, and you're not alone. It's a controversial method of teaching deaf children, as it's language they can't access. It's language deprivation. Deaf children being taught through oralism have often been found to suffer from anxiety, depression, loneliness. But hey, maybe none of that matters if it worked. They worked real hard on it. They were not successful. There was no, at that stage attempt to introduce a sign language. There would have been awareness of fingerspelling and some use of fingerspelling in the program from early on, where certainly the deaf children themselves had had some contact with it. And that's another story. I'm not going to go into that in detail. But effectively, you no know, use of other sign language systems. And as is traditional in oral educational programs, sign language is prohibited. So that to the extent that the children may have been trying to gesture with each other, that would have been viewed as a distraction in the class. What they were not discouraged from doing was gesturing to each other during non-school time. Recess. So still in school, but not in the classroom. Okay. Also, this was a day school. And they get there the way children all over the world get to school. They were bused, which means every morning all these children are getting on the bus together. And that's not just the children of the primary school, that's the adolescents as well. Mm. Okay, so they're all coming together on the bus. And in the afternoons, school's out, they're all coming home together. The buses are about as regulated as buses for school children anywhere. As long as you're not fighting with each other, we don't care what you do. Okay. <laughs> So these children had lots of contact with each other. And the language, we think, emerged during these periods of um, unregulated contact. 
All I used to do at break and lunchtime was make up dance routines. These children accidentally created an entire language. But why hadn't this happened sooner? At home, for example. Parents become sensitive to what the child needs. So the parents do the communication for the child. Okay. And the child gets used to that and becomes and relies on his parents to express his or her needs for them. And so the child lacks the the need, the necessity to invent language. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Well, if you don't, if someone's doing it for you, you don't you have to do it. it. Yeah. This is not language. It's yeah. communication, but it's not language. But it's enough mm. in in the home. So the children grow up isolated from language because they don't really need it. The child, the deaf child in the Spanish home, he's not, he can't access the Spanish around him. Mm. So he has no accessibility. Because of that, his parents end up doing communication for him. So now he has no, not only does he lack accessibility, he doesn't have necessity anymore either. When they took him, it put him in a school where you had other deaf children, these children still had the natural or the innate ability to start generating language with some with rules. They were they didn't have accessibility to the hearing people around them. They did have accessibility to each other. Yes. They're also in an academic environment, which means they're being challenged with new information all the time. That's stimulating. So these children now have something to talk about and try and, and a need, at least on the bus or in recess, when they're just on their own between themselves, among themselves, they have a need to communicate to each other. A deaf child, like you said, has a gesture for something. And maybe from home to home, it'll vary. When children are together, what one gesture tends to predominate. We call it conventionalizing. Hmm. So you may have three signs for sleep, and really, very quickly, everybody agrees to use just one gesture for sleep. Yeah. Right? So you, now you start to build a vocabulary that way, a shared vocabulary. So in individual homes, families had got by. They'd made up their own signs to understand and communicate what they needed to say, food, sleep, hot, cold. Put these individual household signs together when you put children together, and one vocabulary emerges. It sounds almost like an experiment. Well, how do you raise a child in isolation? Yeah. Let's say you want to deliberately do this. That's the forbidden okay. experiment, isn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. I remember this from my A-level psychology lessons, the case of Jeannie. Jeannie grew up socially isolated. After her father decided she wasn't smart enough, he kept her locked in a room, strapped to a potty, or tied up in her crib. Being locked in a room, alone, for these formative years doesn't exactly give you the exposure to language you need to start to use and understand it yourself. When Jeannie was discovered, linguists and psychologists conducted years of testing and research on her with the aim of learning more about language acquisition. Because it's not every day a child raised in isolation comes along for this kind of research, and it's certainly not ethically right to pluck a baby at random from a hospital ward to do it yourself. Excuse me, madam, would you mind awfully if we experimented on your brand new bundle of joy? Nothing too damaging, we just want to raise her in isolation. Yeah, can't see too many new parents going for that. But let's hop on over into the conditional tense and imagine we're doing it for a moment. 
So you raise your child, but you're going to have to to be make the experiment fair. Mm. You're going to have to nurture him in every way that you would normally nurture a child, but one. Right. The one being we're going to deny him all access to language Mm. to see what happens. Mm. Right. What happens, of course, is that he becomes languageless. You've done him a real disservice. Mm. What if you raise two children this way to see if they form a language together? And how do you run that experiment? Again, you have the same ethical problems. But of course, if you have two deaf children, you are running that experiment. Now, what if the government takes 50 deaf children and puts them all together and says, you're going to go home every day, every night, you will have the normal love and affection Mm. of parents and family. You are going to be fed. You're going to be sheltered from the elements. You're going to be clothed. Mm. You're going to be entertained. You're going to get to play. You do all of these things, but we are going to deny you access to language. And you go, well, wait a minute. I got a big ethical issue with this. Mm. But what if the government is doing, not even thinking of running an experiment? They simply want to educate you, but they don't know how to do it. So they put you all in this room. They nurture you, do everything they would for any other child, and they try to give you access to Spanish, but they can't because of your disability. They just ran the experiment. So it was an accident how this language came about. Yes. Wow. Most of my accidents involve clumsy trips and stumbles worthy of a slot on you've been framed. The Nicaraguan government accidentally created a language, credit where credit's due. But remember, they still didn't realise they were doing this. That's where James's wife comes in. When they were running the deaf schools, the deaf schools in Managua, and it was apparent that the children were were communicating to each other with their hands, the representatives of the Ministry of Education asked the consultants from MIT for advice as to what was going on. And the MIT people doing the bilingual education on the Atlantic coast said, we are without a clue, we don't know anything about deafness, but we do have someone here who does. And that's where my wife came in, because my wife is a graduate of MIT and worked with these people. Okay. Okay. So the, the foreign technical expertise that Nicaragua brought into the bilingual program, those people were familiar with Judy, Mm. and they recommended Judy as a possible source of information. In 1986, the Ministry of Education invited her to come to Managua, which she did. And when she was there, um, she, she immediately said, what you have going on here is that extraordinarily unethical experiment that linguists have been talking about for years, but no one dared do, but you've been doing it. Wow. And not only are you doing it, but as this language is emerging, you just happen to have a linguist who knows what she's seeing. Mm. And the video camera has been invented. That's what drew the scientific attention worldwide to the emergence of Nicaraguan Sign Language. When I had this conversation with James, I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. 
It's a phenomenal, unique story, like nothing I'd heard before. Judy's work didn't end with that initial assessment. For many years, Nicaragua asked Judy and James to help with researching the deaf population across the country. Then, something remarkable happened. When I went to Bluefield in 1994, it was again part of that grant to document every deaf person and to assess their language and their communication level and relate it back to Managua or say it has no relation to Managua. Mm. Right? When we did that, we were in Bluefields at a time when the families of disabled children had come together to try to advocate for services for their children. Mm. Had nothing to do with us. These were just parents saying, our children are not in the school system and they need to be. Yeah. And what would be their first step in advocating for services for their children to document them and say, look, this is what the problem is. This is the extent of it. You have to do something for us. So now you have this group of families with children of all sorts of disabilities and they knew, you know, some of them were children with a family with deaf kids and they had been documenting the extent of the problem in their community. So even if you had a family, even you had a deaf children child who was not in this group, they mm. knew about them. Mm, this mm. was ready made for me. So I go mm. in there and I go, listen, I need to, to see every deaf kid in the community. They go, oh, no problem. We'll have 20 of them here for you tomorrow. When that happened, we go, well, wait a minute. Is this all that we are? Maybe we should do, this is such a big group that maybe we should go to the next step. And mm. what can we do mm. to intervene on their behalf? We coordinated with the Deaf Association in Managua, which then sent out um, two or three representatives, including the, uh, the president of the Deaf Association, who was a, a young deaf man who was, of course, mm. sign language fluent. And he met with these parents and said, I'll bet you had no idea that, that deaf people could communicate like I do that you have, I'll bet you had very limited expectations for your own children, but it need not be that way. Oh. And the parents then asked us to introduce Nicaraguan Sign Language to the community. There is some question as to whether it should be Nicaraguan Sign Language or another sign language. Mm. Okay. There are other groups that bring, for example, American Sign Language mm. um, in the America, in the outside of the United States. Um, and there are arguments for doing that. That was not an ethical issue we were ever involved in. The parents asked us to bring in Nicaraguan Sign Language, and that was the end of the discussion. So we then modeled that on the literacy program. We took deaf young adults from Managua, and we used them as sign language role models. Wow. And in 1995, the, the government in Nicaragua gave us a classroom at our disposal. And This is in, in Bluefields? In Bluefields. Yeah. And with some grant money that we raised mm. uh, and with assistance of the, of the Deaf Association and, and with the assistance and, and collaboration with the Ministry of Education and primarily with the Parents Association, we ran this immersion program where we just were all in the same room all day long yeah. uh, with two sign language role models. And that over time emerged, evolved into an academic program 
which ultimately became a full school with a calendar year, you know, and full academics and whatnot. And the Ministry of Education role in that program would increase each year Mm. until ultimately they took it over because it was their responsibility. Mm. I don't know even, I haven't been to Bluefields in some time, so I couldn't even tell you the status of that other than that there is a vibrant deaf community in Bluefields that goes back to that initial program that we had. Bluefields isn't alone in having a strong deaf community in Nicaragua. In many developing countries around the world, disability, including deafness, is seen as a flaw, something that means you're not worthy, not worthy of education, not worthy of family, not worthy of work. But why should that be? Surely everyone in the world, regardless of our differences in physical and mental capabilities, is worthy and deserves the same opportunities. We can all bring a unique perspective. We can all do something. When Antonio from Valencia, Spain, came to Nicaragua, he was determined to put his chefing experience to good use for the deaf community in the city of Granada. In a turn of events, things started with opening a hammock workshop, providing employment for deaf workers. Today, the workshop is connected to the Café de las Sonrisas, the Café of Smiles, Smiles Coffee. All staff in the café are deaf or hard of hearing, and you have to order as appropriate. The tables have all the signs you would need, salt, pepper, toilet, bill. You can point, you can get people's attention, and the alphabet is on the wall with other signs to learn and use too while you're waiting for your food. It's a wonderful place. Throughout what he does, Antonio has been consistently creating employment opportunities for the deaf community in Granada. A day has to arrive when you enter a bar, supermarket, a cafe, and you're not surprised that the person serving you is deaf or blind or has another type of disability. To achieve that, we have to open thousands of businesses like this in the world. And I understand that this is a surprise. Tourists come and, I'll have a coffee please, and the staff, oh, they indicate they're deaf, and they're like, whoa, okay, they take a minute, they order, and they leave with their hearts full. But what a beautiful thing it would be if one day this wasn't a surprise, that you enter and you just do it. Think about it this way. You're in the street, out in Granada. A German tourist walks past. I say German because that's a difficult language, right? And they say, cathedral. And you go, this way, that way, pointing with your hands. You try to help them. Why would you have a problem here? It takes just a minute to understand. But Antonio's good intentions weren't instantly met with open arms. Do you know the biggest problem we had here with this cafe? Neighbours, locals, wouldn't enter. They didn't come through the door. Fear, lack of understanding, ignorance. Today, a local enters, orders in Nicaraguan sign language, and I'm sat there in my office, I'm dying of laughter. Because if I'd filmed it, hidden camera style from my office, they'd see the progress they've made, learning the language over the years. And finally, it's education. Look, I have an activity when it's low tourist season here. I hand out cards with the alphabet on. I go to a school, I give out 50 cards, and I say, on Saturday, you can come and eat at the cafe for free if you order in sign language. If you don't, you pay for the food with cash. And six-year-old kids come in and they do it, and they learn the alphabet in a week. Through engaging the community with activities like that, Antonio has been able to inspire others with similar initiatives. 
Now, the concept is spreading across the world, and Antonio is always more than happy to help out. Estoy ayudando a una señora, a una mujer, para abrir otro proyecto en Hermosillo, México. I'm helping a woman to open another in Mexico, in Bogota, Colombia, there's Café Sin Palabras, another in Buenos Aires, Argentina. You know what happened? When I said I'm going to open Café de las Sonrisas, people thought I was crazy. People didn't believe it would succeed. And today, there are six more across the world because we achieved it. That, for us, is like, wow, it's a real sense of pride. We did a video conference on Skype with the other restaurants that are open, and it was so emotional to see deaf people from other countries with the same problems, people giving them employment and opportunity. If you say to me now, Tio, I want to open a similar cafe, we can help you with an enormous amount of experience. That's our commitment. It's funny because people sometimes write to me, Antonio, how much does it cost to help set up? Well, the question's the wrong way around. The question really is, Antonio, can you help us to do that? No somos McDonald's, no somos Starbucks. Somos el café de las sonrisas. Copiennos. Háganlo, lo importante es que lo hagan. We're not McDonald's, Starbucks. We're the café de las sonrisas. Copy us, do it. The important thing is to do it. You can visit the Café de las Sonrisas for yourself in Granada, Nicaragua. It's a real joyful place and a little oasis of calm in the noisy hustle and bustle of the Central American city streets. But if you're not visiting Nicaragua anytime soon, you can still support the work they do by buying one of their hammocks online. And both the Café de las Sonrisas and Nicaraguan Sign Language Projects, the work James and his wife Judy do, accept donations. I'll post the links in the show notes. Coming up next time on Language Stories, for the final episode of this series, an Indigenous language that defies all expectations of an Indigenous language living alongside a colonial one. We discover Guarani in Paraguay. You've been listening to Language Stories, a podcast by Lindsay Does Languages. If you like what we do and you like video, then head on over to our YouTube channel where you can watch the sister video to this podcast episode. Just search Lindsay Does Languages on YouTube and on our channel, you'll see the playlist for language stories. Once you've done that, the best things you can do to help us spread the word about language stories are to tell a friend you know who will love this too and leave a review on your favourite podcast directory. That's a fancy way of saying where you're listening to this right now. Reviews help us to get found by new listeners, which is pretty important when you're a tiny new fish in a big podcast pond. And finally, if you have a language story that you'd love to share, or you know someone that does, get in touch. You can email me at lindsay, that's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, at doeslanguages.com. That's lindsay at doeslanguages.com. I always love to hear from you. Your feedback helps to shape future episodes. And that's important because without shape, they're just lumps. As always, you can follow me in all the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all that jazz, and learn more at lindsaydoeslanguages.com. Until next time, keep learning languages and keep sharing stories. goodbye in Nicaraguan Sign Language. You'll have to trust me on that.